You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, as, as people are finding their seats, just quick show of hands. Um, how many of y'all are traveling this week for the holidays? Anybody yet to travel? Okay. Staying home? All right, cool. How many of y'all have Christmas shopping yet to do this week? All right, me too, my people. How many people are just, you're totally done with Christmas shopping? Who is done with Christmas shopping in November? Incredible. I mean, a couple people. That's great. Our high achievers, they're in the back. Excellent. Good morning. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm the spiritual formation pastor here on staff. Um, and man, we, we have got some good stuff to talk about this morning. Uh, we've been in John chapter 1 the last couple of weeks in our Advent series. Um, and this morning, we're going to come to just some really sweet stuff. So I'd like to just invite you uh, to stand if you're able uh, for the reading of our teaching text this morning. And we will just dive right in because we've got a lot to cover. John 1, 14 through 18, the very words of God. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Isn't that gorgeous? I mean, we've been translating the Greek New Testament into English for like 500 years, and no one has improved on William Tyndale's translation uh, in this text. I mean, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It sounds like a voiceover from like a Terrence Malick movie or something. Um, I, I don't know. I thought maybe I'd get more laughs out of that. I don't know. That was a great reference by me and would have absolutely killed in another crowd. How many of y'all have seen The Tree of Life? Okay, that's, a, that's our homework for this week is you got, you got to see the tree of life. No one who trusts in the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. That's from that movie, and that's uh, kind of related to what we're talking about this morning. So let's just dive into, into John chapter 1 together. I want to work through these verses because they are beautiful, they are deep, they are rich. They're not necessarily that hard to understand. And so what I want to do is, is move quickly through these verses, then I want to talk about um, how we live them and sort of what they mean for our lives. So we're starting in in verse 14, where it says, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, in the previous verses of this chapter, John was making the point that Jesus himself is the God of creation. We would connect that to the Old Testament book of Genesis, right? He says he was in the beginning with God. Through him, everything was created, and without him, nothing uh, was made that has been made. Um, so that's all connected to Genesis. We see that John is kind of, he's pulling that antecedent into, uh, 
this gospel. But in verse 14, he's going to depart from Genesis imagery, and he's going, to, uh, he's going to shift into Exodus imagery to show us that not only is Jesus himself the God of creation, Jesus himself is the God of the covenant, which is to say he is a God of relationship. He's a God of relationship. So here's how John is going gonna, is gonna to break this down. First of all, uh, he calls Jesus the word. We've established that already in this chapter. We've talked about this a little bit. Word is the Greek word logos. In, in Greek culture, the logos was kind of the idea of this sort of central governing, organizing principle of the universe. But word may have a, a different sort of meaning here. Uh, and that meaning comes out of actually Aramaic translations and paraphrases of the Old Testament. By the time of Jesus, the Hebrew language was kind of dying. And folks in Galilee, where he did his ministry, they primarily spoke Aramaic, which was a dialect of Hebrew. Uh, and so to preserve the scriptures, they would paraphrase them and translate them into Aramaic. And in Aramaic, um, at this time, they, they had gotten away from using the covenant name of God. They wouldn't speak it. They wouldn't write it. And so they had different ways of referring to God. They might say, the name of the Lord, or they might say, the arm of the Lord. That way, they're referring to something about God, but not God specifically. And one of the things they would refer to is the memra, the word, the word of the Lord. It was used as a stand-in name for God, whose covenant name they didn't speak. And specifically, memra refers to the presence of God among his people, which, is, which leads them uh, and helps and supports them. And so contextually, word in John chapter 1, it indicates Jesus as being a few things. One, Jesus is, as the word, he is God's redeeming action and creative purposes in the world. So remember in the, in the Old Testament that God's speech is action, okay? He spoke the earth into existence, or Isaiah 55, he says, as the rain comes down and waters the field and produces crops, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Remember that Jesus is going to say later in this book, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do. So he's God's redeeming action and creative purposes. He's also the truest and fullest expression of the nature and the character of God. He's the very revelation of God. He is God's definitive statement to all creation. Um, and not just the words and the commands from his mouth, but his entire embodied life. And that's why we call Jesus the Word. And that's why Jesus, and not the Bible, is the definitive revelation from God. The Bible can teach you some things about God and what God is like and how to live, but the Bible did not create you. The Bible can't know you. The Bible can't love you. The Bible can't forgive you. Um, and you can't have a relationship with the Bible. But Jesus did all of those things. And you can have a relationship with him because he has an embodied life. And that is what makes him the word of God. So here's everything we know about Jesus, the word so far from John 1. He's, um, the word is thought and spoken where God himself is at the beginning of all things. That's in the beginning of the chapter. The word itself has the essence and the nature of God, and therefore it has autonomy and personhood. And so there's union and differentiation within the relationship. And the creative word is before all things. And it is the redemptive word which gives light to illuminate humanity, even in our darkness. And what does John say that this word has done? He says this word became. It became. This Greek root translated became has appeared a few times already in the text. In verse 3, it, re it refers to the coming into being of all things. 
uh, in verse 6, it describes the coming of John the Baptist as a witness to Jesus. In verse 12, it signifies the existence of those who have been given the right to become children of God. And what's interesting about all these things, the creation, John the Baptist, the called children of God, all of those might be objects upon which Jesus, a divine subject, would act, right? In a sentence, you have a subject and an object and a verb. Subject acts upon a verb or on on an object by way of a verb. Jesus is a divine subject. We are objects. He acts upon us. But in this becoming, he leaves his privileged position And the divine subject who acts upon us becomes himself an object to be acted upon by us. And in doing so, he makes himself vulnerable to us and opens himself up to us to treat him however we choose. And we know how that goes for him. Now, part of the thing that that we need to clarify here is that for John, the, the big news of Christmas is not that Jesus came to earth. I mean, we speak about it that way, you know, because of the poverty of language and stuff. We talk about Jesus coming to earth, but John's already established he was here in the beginning. He was here before the creation of all things. He was before all things, in all things, through all things, above and under all things. He's the end of all things. So Jesus has never been apart from creation. What's different now is is not so much um, that he came to where we are, but it's that he became what we are. He became what we are. And he becomes what we are in a very specific way. I have to move quickly. Uh, he becomes flesh. He becomes flesh. Flesh, Greek word sarks, it means skin. What this means is that the time for abstractions is over. Metaphors can't help us. Metaphors don't matter. Material matters. Um, bodies matter. Flesh and blood matters. The earth matters. It's interesting that John doesn't say that the word became a human being, an anthropon. He says the word became flesh. What's the difference? Flesh is human nature as associated with Adam. It's human nature under sin. It's, it's human inability. It's human mortality. It's the, you'd call it the, the spiritual impotence of a human being apart from God. It's total inability. And if Jesus had merely come as a human and not come as flesh, Uh, then his life would not be good news for us. Like it would actually only serve uh, as like a condemning standard that would heighten our pain, right? Why can't you be a human being like him, okay? So all that would have done is proven what kind of humans we could be if we hadn't fallen. And we couldn't call that grace and truth. We could call it like a cruel joke and a mockery of our predicament. Um, But Jesus came as flesh. He emptied himself of divine power and ability and he made himself wholly reliant on God which is what true humans have to be. He says in John 14, it's the Father living within me who's doing the work. And then he tells his disciples, with the Holy Spirit empowering you, you will do greater works than even these. So we can't dehumanize Jesus. He was not Superman. He was not God just cosplaying as a human. He, he, is, he was flesh. He performed miracles and he did things that human beings can't do, but he only did that by receiving power from outside of himself. And so the word becomes flesh, and then what does he do? He makes his dwelling among us. Literally, he tabernacled with us. John has uh, transliterated this Hebrew word shakan into the Greek, and shakan just means to dwell. Uh, But specifically, it means to dwell temporarily with someone else. There are other words in the Old Testament that mean dwell. Shakan always means dwell within the context of a relationship. 
And the image that John is referencing is the tabernacle. It's the tent of meeting. It's the mobile tent that the ancient Hebrews carried around in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt and before their entry into the land of promise. You can read about this um, in Exodus 25 all the way to 40. 15 chapters in the book of Exodus on the tabernacle. It is the longest uninterrupted section of scripture devoted to one subject in the whole Bible is this tabernacle. But God says, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And what would happen in Exodus when God manifested his dwelling presence? Exodus 40 tells us the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So glory is the Hebrew word kavod. It means weight, but there's another Hebrew word that you've heard associated with glory. Somebody shout it out. Shekinah, very good. Okay, does Shekinah sound like a word that we just talked about? Shekan, okay. Shekan, the verb to dwell. What they did, um, Shekinah doesn't appear in the Bible, but what, uh, what they did in the Talmud and the Mishnah and later Jewish writings is they, they invented this word Shekinah to be the noun form of Shekan, dwell. So Shekinah is, this glory is the dwellingness of God. It's the withness of God his manifest presence and his manifest power. That's God's glory. And then John says in John chapter one, we beheld his glory. You see how he's just, it's tabernacle, it's glory, it's presence. He's moving through this Exodus thing. He says, we beheld his glory. So Jesus is the Shekan. He is the dwelling. He is the tabernacle. He's the place where God dwells on earth. He's the place where we meet with God. And then he's also the Shekinah glory of God because he himself is God's witness, he is God's character and power on display, and he is helping and leading God's people. And John says his glory was full of grace and truth. It was full of grace and truth. I just want to pause here because Christians, we do kind of a weird thing with these words, grace and truth. And we kind of treat them like they are like in tension with one another or like they're opposites, right? Oh, well, you know, especially like parents and people who lead people and people who are in some, some kind of authority situation sometimes take this approach, which is like, I have to approach them with grace, but also truth, right? Because truth without grace is rude, and grace without truth is just irresponsible. And so I've got to make sure that we have both. But if I'm going to err on one side or the other, I'm definitely going to err on rude more than I'm going to err on what I think is spiritually irresponsible. Here's the deal. Grace and truth are not in conflict with one another. They're not in tension with one another. The glory of Jesus is showing us that it's not grace and truth. It's not grace or truth. What God has revealed to us in Christ is that grace is the truth. I thought that'd be good news for somebody this morning. I don't know, maybe just... Grace is the truth. And these correspond to two very important words in the Old Testament that you will also recognize from the Exodus story, but many other places. When God reveals his glory to Moses on the mountain before he gives him the, uh, the replacement commandments, and he says, you can't look at my face, you can look at where I used to be, but I'll, I'll proclaim my name to you. And he proclaims his name to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness abounding in hesed and emmet, steadfast love and faithfulness, those two words appear together over and over again in the Old Testament as the definitive statement of God's character. And in 
the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that appeared in the years before the life of Jesus that his disciples would have been familiar with, the two words used to translate steadfast love and faithfulness are these words, grace and truth. And so what John is saying here is that Jesus is this full, true embodiment of God's character that corresponds to his, God's presence in the tabernacle, God's manifestation of his presence in his glory. And God's character is revealed in those things as being steadfast love and faithfulness, which are relational terms, okay? John's gonna go on. He says, verse 15, John the Baptist testified concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one about, uh, I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I'm gonna skip this because we're gonna talk about John the Baptist more in depth in two weeks, okay? So we beheld his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Go to verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay? The law was given by Moses. Grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. So in John's, the law was grace. The law was grace. The law was not legalism. The law was grace. It was meant to promote and protect the flourishing of the ancient Hebrews, and in many ways it did. But because of the influence of sin, human beings are not able to maintain right relationship with God via the law. We can't do it. And so the law, uh, Paul is going to say later, the law became an instrument of sin. Sin actually turns around and uses the commands of God against us. But God has always been a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's always been a God of grace and truth. But the law had just ceased to be a viable means of us experiencing God that way. And so, in fact, um, because of sin, the law kind of does the opposite thing. So this is why God sent Jesus. Moses received the law from God and gave it to the people. But neither Moses nor the law was an embodiment of steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus is. So when Jesus gives us grace, he does it by giving us himself. When Jesus gives us steadfast love and faithfulness, he does it by giving us his very self. He is grace incarnate. He is grace concarnate. Um, and verse 18 tells us this, no one has ever seen God, which is true. I mean, think, think back into the Old Testament. Think of all the stories where people almost see God. Jacob wrestles with them all night and then wakes up in the morning. And he's like, whoa, God was in this place and I didn't even know. Moses, we talked about a minute ago, has to look at God's back. God says, you can't see my face and live. Isaiah has a vision where he just sees, he just sees God's robe. And just the robe of God is glorious enough to cause him to like despair of his own unworthiness. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father, literally it means in the bosom, in the bosom of the father, has made him known. So God's accessibility used to be shrouded and mitigated, but in Jesus Christ, God says, I want to be seen, but not just seen. I want to be touched and heard and felt and laughed with and cried with and hugged and held and kissed and known. And so Jesus makes God known. Literally in the Greek, it says he explains God. He exegetes God. So Jesus doesn't make God known through his words only. He does it with his whole life. And the rest of the Gospel of John is an account of the specifics of how Jesus did this, how he revealed God 
to us. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Gospel of John over the next year. And so as we do, pay very close attention to what Jesus is doing as he reveals God to us. That's John 1, 14 through 18. So what do we gather from these verses? Let's summarize our passage real quick. I think I have a summary slide. Um, here's our summary of John 1, 14 through 18. Here are some things we learned. One, God's life is shaped around being with us. God's life is shaped around being with us. Two, that is an extension of God's character and nature. The fact that his life is shaped around being with us is an extension of his character and nature as a Trinitarian God. Being with is a primary expression of grace and truth. That's something we learned from this chapter. Being with somebody the way that Jesus was is a primary expression of grace and truth, of steadfast love and faithfulness. And God being with God plus God being with us is glory. Glory means the presence of God dwelling with God and the presence of God dwelling with us. Oneness between God and humankind and between us and one another. In fact, the whole story of Scripture is this story. The whole story of Scripture is God with us from Eden to eternity. So it's God with the humans in the garden. After the fall into sin, gotten the exodus from Egypt, it's God with the humans in the tabernacle. And then it's God dwelling among humans in the temple. And then his presence leaves the temple, but then it's God dwelling among humans in the incarnate Christ. And then Jesus ascends to heaven, and now it's God dwelling among humans in humans as the church because we are human temples of the Holy Spirit. And in eternity, what we have to hope for uh, in the new heavens and new earth is that God is going to make his dwelling among us forever. And there won't be any mitigation. And there won't be any distance. And we're going to see the lines on his face because Jesus has a body. Because he is the word made flesh. Now, how do we make application of this? Because it's one thing to understand all of this in terms of, you know, like this is what God is doing in Christ. And it's one thing to sort of understand that God's life is shaped around being with us. But it's, it's another thing to think about how we as apprentices of Christ on earth follow his example. Um, and especially in the context of relationships, because everything that we're seeing so far is with, 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 with. It's dwelling with, it's his character is oriented around another. It's steadfast love and faithfulness. So I want to dig in a little bit. By way of an illustration, um, and let's just, we'll go with something that's happened probably to every one of us in here, or a lot of us in here, and that is you're out and about in Austin, and you encounter a homeless man. And um, witnessing the hardship of this homeless person, it troubles you, and you want to take action, you want to do something about it. And if you want to take action, you have a few options. The first option is you could go home and get on social media, and you could write a post about the problem of homelessness in Austin, and you could give some statistics, and you could make sure to inform your audience um, that it's really not proper to talk of homeless people, because we shouldn't reduce people with a label. But if we have to reduce people with a label, unhoused person is a kinder label. I guess. You can insist that every unhoused person has inherent dignity and worth, and they have an entire life story, um, and they contend daily with like a constellation of difficulties that the rest of us 
like cannot understand and don't really want to think about? And you would be correct, okay? You would be correct. Here's another option. You could get to work. So in your passion, you could like, you could organize a clothing drive or a food drive, or you could get a group of people together to go volunteer for an afternoon at a, a soup kitchen or a shelter or the community first village or something. You can make a donation to an organization. You might make manna bags of like essential supplies like we've done at Midtown before um, and hand them out to people as you drive around town. That's the second option. Here's the third option. Third option would be you start an organization. You start a team, you start a task force, like a coalition of people from the public sector and the private sector, um, nonprofits and faith communities, uh, along with like a number of people who are either like currently unhoused or formerly unhoused to work alongside you to address the problem and solve the problem of homelessness in Austin. Here's your fourth option. You could walk over and say hello. And you could shake his hand. And you could ask his name. And you could say, nice to meet you. And you could ask about his day. You could ask what he likes to do for fun. Does he like football? What's his favorite song? Where did he grow up? And what was it like there? And what's it like to live on the street? Those are four different options. And all of those options involve movement, you know, in favor of another. Like, all of these are kind of good options. We could sum up these responses this way. Um, yeah, perfect. First, we've got being for. That's the posting on social media. I'm being for them. I am, I am for uh, the advancement of this cause and the solution of this problem. And I am lending my voice and my sort of, you know, my, like, emotional support to it. Being for. Okay, good thing. It's a good thing to be for things. A lot of people are just against things, and they don't even ever make it to being for, okay? It's a good thing to be for things, okay? The next was working for, okay, right? So I can get to work. And out of my resources, um, I can change some things. I can make some things different. I can make some things better. Um, and here's the problem is that with those first two, they don't require any relationship or interaction whatsoever, you can do either of those things without ever having to confront the complexity of another human being right in front of your face. The third one's working with. Okay, that, and that's, that's a, you know, a little bit closer in terms of relationship because to work with someone, there has to be some kind of relationship, but it doesn't, necessarily, it doesn't have to be a close relationship. And more than likely, um, it's actually going to be like a functional relationship or an instrumentalized relationship. Um, you know, if it's primarily about solving the problem with which you associate that person who is working with you, right? So the first three options will all make you feel good. They will all make you feel like you've done something that counts. You might get some applause from people around you. You might do some good. You might inspire some action in others. And all of those are positive things. Like, all of those are very are positive and good things. It's indicative of compassion, it's indicative of, um, you know, a desire for justice. It's, it's indicative of some generosity. But all the while, you can avoid the nuance and the complexity of an actual relationship. And so by being for or working for or even working with, you can actually evade ever being with a human being whom you primarily associate with a problem or an issue. Because it's much easier that way, isn't it? 
way easier to do something or say something than it is to love somebody. And so here's, here's a question for us. Look at these modes of, of relationship. Being for, working for, working with, being with. Which one of these best describes your primary posture toward people? And not just, not just people who you perceive as needy or having an issue, but everybody. Do any of these name your default mode? Which one of these was most celebrated in your family growing up? Which one of these was most valued in your, um, in your church growing up? Which one of these best describes the way you relate to God? Is it the same answer for all of them? My hunch is that like many or maybe even most of us probably uh, have working for programming. Um, and if you have working for programming, then being with, uh, you probably regard that as unproductive, um, maybe even lazy, maybe even sinful or neglectful. Look at the four modes of relationship again. Which of these does Jesus embody? He embodies all four. Okay? He embodies all four, but which one comes first? Being with. Being with. Um, when it comes to Jesus' relationship both to God and to human beings, you never see him being for, working for, or working with in a way that's disconnected from being with. And that's what it means that he is the word made flesh and dwelling among us. That's what it means to live incarnationally. And so that's what we just learned from John 1, 14 through 18. And that is what celebrating Christmas is allegedly like supposed to connect us to, right? The virgin will bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay. If Christmas is meant to be anything, it's meant to be the time for being with, not working for. Being with God and being with people. But working for has a tendency to creep in and corrupt it, doesn't it? It does. I mean, like we can go an entire Christmas season without spending any meaningful time with Jesus because we're so busy trying to throw him an awesome birthday party. Right? I mean, after all, he is the reason for the season. But like when it comes to being with at Christmas time, it's not just God that we neglect, right? It's not just Jesus that we neglect. Here are some examples that most of us can relate to. So you're hosting Christmas or you are throwing the Christmas party. And so you're emailing back and forth with everybody. You're coordinating dates and times and rides from the airport and you're assigning bedrooms and you've decided that it's okay for them to bring the dog and... You do all of the planning and all of the shopping. You spend the time, you spend the money. You work all day decorating and cooking and baking. And even as people come in the door and the party fills up, um, you're worried that the food might get burned or that the food might get cold or that you might forget something. And so you remain just totally preoccupied in the kitchen. And deep down, like you really want everybody to enjoy themselves and have a good time and like maybe a compliment would be nice on what a great host you are and how tasteful the decorations are and how delicious the food was. 
in your anxiety, you spend the entire party jumping from task to task to task, setting things out, cleaning things up, and enjoying just like bits and pieces of conversation between other more urgent tasks. And you're more than a little stressed the entire time, but you stuff it and smile. And then you say goodnight to your guests and you hug them and you say, it's a shame we didn't get to talk more while you were here. And then they leave and you collapse on the couch and you're exhausted and you're frustrated and you're mostly disappointed. Can you relate to that? Don't raise your hands. Here's another one. You ever try to give a Christmas gift to someone when the relationship is difficult? So you're having like conflict in the relationship. There's some unspoken like tension or strain or emotional block in the relationship. And so you spend like hours trying to figure out what is the perfect present that I can give this person to make things right. And you get online and you like Google and you read all these listicles. And it's like you know, 50 Christmas gifts for every kind of dad, like 20 ways to wow your girlfriend this Christmas, like 30 gadgets that every host mom needs and whatever. And like the anxiety and the pressure of wanting to give just the right gift just like builds and builds and builds until finally what happens is you settle on something that's unnecessarily expensive that you're not sure they'll use or even like. But you're like, well, if the thought that counts is a bad thought, then maybe the price tag can like make up for that a little. And so you go for it and you give them that gift and then they offer you like a meager smile and they say thank you with a half hug and you know that you failed. And that all the work you put into finding the perfect gift was never going to help bridge the chasm that's opened up between you. Here's another one. Christmas, Christmas feels empty. Something is lacking. Um, you know, every Christmas you are like comfortable and cozy with your family. Um, and you, you haven't had to worry this whole season about money. And like, you know that there's going to be plenty of presents under the tree, both to you and from you. Um, but it's tough because it breaks your heart to think about those who don't have as much as you and they're out in the cold and they don't have family or they don't have friends. Um, or they don't have money or gifts or anything like that. And so you buy up a bunch of gifts for the children of incarcerated people. Um, you purge your closet, and you clean out the garage, and you take, like, a truckload of stuff to the Salvation Army. Um, you know, maybe you tell your friends and family that, like, I, I really have enough. You know, this Christmas, what I would really like is just for you, instead of buying me gifts, just, like, make a donation to Habitat for Humanity for whatever you're going to spend and, um, and even if, like, even in doing all that, even if you don't see the difference that all of that may have made, like, at least you get to feel good about, um, you know, what you've done for the less fortunate. Now, what did those three scenarios all have in common? They're all sort of controlled and oriented around the word for. They're all about working for, doing for. So we see people in need it makes us feel good to do something that we perceive as being for them. Um, I mean, it's a little patronizing and self-serving, but like it's well-intended, right? And when we want our guests to have a good time, our impulse is like to spend the whole time doing things for them, to impress them, to entertain them, to keep them busy, whatever. And we have a relationship that's faltering. Like we, uh, we wish that there's something we could do to make everything right, because that would be so much easier than having to be with the person long enough to have the honest and vulnerable conversation that might actually resolve the conflict. Now, all of these examples are like specific to Christmas. 
but they're representative of like a whole life in which we try to make relationships better and we try to make things better for other people and we try to make ourselves better primarily by doing things for people. Our family, our friends, our coworkers and stuff. The problem is that for without with does basically nothing to resolve the real problems that most people are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, like fear of rejection or fear of a lack of identity or guilt or isolation or purposelessness. You know, no Christmas gift that you could possibly find in a list of the 50 gifts for every kind of dad is going to make a dent in any of those things, probably. Maybe like, like unless it's a book or something. But most of all, most of all, and here's maybe the, the most important thing for us, four is not how God celebrates Christmas. Four is not how God celebrates Christmas. Christmas is not the time in which Jesus works for us. It's actually not even the time when Jesus works with us. Christmas is exclusively the time of his being with us. Nothing more. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's it. Fullness of God in helpless babe, right? The power and the glory of the creator of the universe in a skull that you could crush with one hand. He's the picture of weakness. He's the picture of vulnerability. He can't do anything for himself, let alone for all, or like for us. And all he does is just to like be with us as a baby. And that's the miracle. It's just that he's with us. Now, here's, here's what this means like for us living, right? Because like, it's not that like being with is the only correct mode of relationship and that like being for and working for and working with are all illegitimate. You know, being for people is a good thing. Doing things for people can be a good thing. Working alongside people can be a good thing. Um, but doing for without being with is not the way of Jesus. And if all of our, like, being and doing for others isn't grounded in being with others, then what we're engaged in is sin. And if all of our, like, being for and doing for God is not grounded in being with God, then what we're engaged in is sin. And so what we have to do is we have to ask, each of us, does my working for come from a fundamental commitment to be with? Does my working for... Arrive, you know, arise out of a fundamental commitment to be with? Or is it more about like avoiding discomfort or avoiding a challenge or avoiding having to have patience or avoiding a loss of control? Let's drive the point home a little harder. Let's, let's look at how did Jesus organize his life around these principles? How did Jesus organize his life around these principles? Um, this might be the next slide. There we go, perfect. Here's how Jesus organized his life around these principles. I got this from Sam Wells, by the way, uh, Church of England priest. Uh, being with, he spent 30 years in Nazareth. From Bethlehem all the way through Nazareth, he's not working with, he's not working for, at least not in any way that the gospel writers felt it necessary to mention. As far as we know from Scripture, he spent 30 years, the first 30 years of his life in Nazareth, simply being with God and being with the people in Nazareth. And when he moves into working with, he spends three years in Galilee. He calls his disciples. He trains them as his apprentices. He unleashes them into ministry, and they multiply the movement. That's three years of his life. And in terms of working for us, like in accomplishing our redemption and salvation and atoning for the sin of the world, 
That takes them about a week in Jerusalem of working for. Okay. How much time in your life do you spend being with or working with or working for? I mean, some of y'all with working for programming are looking at this and you're like, um, well, you know, like no one gets it right on the first try. Like God never did an incarnation before. Um, but it's us who are miscalibrated, not God. Um, and we're skeptical of being with probably because we've been formed by cultural dogma that celebrates and rewards and praises and idolizes stuff like profit and efficiency and productivity and self-sufficiency and liberty and being with is a threat to all of that. And therefore, being with is heretical to all of that. You know, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. Most of us deep down, like we, what we really want is we wish that God would like see what we're doing for him and what we're doing for other people and that he would start doing for us um, and like spare us the, the relationship part. Spare us the part where we have to actually be with, because frankly, we are kind of busy. We have some stuff going on. And I don't know, if you're feeling like uncomfortable or convicted right now, just know I'm with you. Like, I'm, I'm not like an expert in this. I got like worked over by this, you know, the last three days as I did nothing but think about this. And, you know, I, I am like far from being competent in the art of being with. And so I'm just, I'm learning some things with you. Well, here's what Jesus said. Now, this is how Jesus organized his life. Being with, primary priority, it's the first thing he does. A little bit of working with, a little bit of working for, okay? Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Okay, so his expectation of his disciples then and his expectation of us now is that we learn from him how to be with God and be with people so that when he sends us into the world, we go into it the same way that he did. And so, I want to talk just a little bit about how to, how to live carnationally or incarnationally, and then we will be done. So living incarnationally, there's a few dimensions of this. Um, you could, they're like skills. They kind of function like steps, and they build on one another. So the first dimension of living incarnationally is presence. It's presence. It's literally just physical presence. It's embodied presence. I mean, all of us had Zoom fatigue three years ago. Like, all of us know what it's like to go, you know, without embodied presence. Um, and yet, at the same time, many of us are getting more and more used to uh, a scarcity of actual embodied presence in our life. Um, we know that there's something special about presence. I mean, how many times have you been trying to tell a story about something that was, like, so wonderful or so awful or so hilarious that you just can't get it across? And what do you say? You had to be there right? I mean, there, there's something about presence that is unique. There's a degree of life that cannot be conveyed apart from like lived, embodied experience. And so to be present with people means to be available for unmediated interaction. Can I be available for unmediated interaction? This is how Jesus is present to God. Jesus is constantly available to the Father, constantly seeking the Spirit in prayer. And this is how Jesus is present to us. He's present to us and available for unmediated interaction. But then this is how we're called to be with people. What's interesting is that Jesus didn't deal with our problems or uh, insist on, like, relating to us from afar. 
He didn't do all of that as a dis- at a distance. He came close enough to actually get hurt. Um, and so that is required to live incarnationally. Showing up is just like, it's such an obvious prerequisite, but it's just very easy to neglect, and we neglect it often. It's a presence, presence, just the solidarity of wordless association. Can you, can you literally in your body be with somebody? And then the next step is attention. Attention. Uh, Sam Wells, who I'm, who I'm leaning on really heavily here and whose, whose book really challenged me in this, uh, Sam Wells calls the attention the practice of loving study. The practice of loving study. So we see in the Gospels that Jesus is extremely attentive to God. Um, you know, we, we went through the upper room discourse not long ago, and so there's plenty of, of stuff in there that you'll probably remember about Jesus describing the closeness and the intimacy of his relationship with God and the attentiveness that he gives to God. And in Jesus, God is giving us his full attention. Each one of you has God's full attention right now in Jesus Christ. John 15, Jesus describes God as a gardener, someone with expertise who cares like meticulously and specifically for very unique vines and branches. That's attentiveness. Um, Jesus demonstrated attentiveness with like extreme precision. Later in the book of John, and I'm, I'm stepping on a sermon from later in the book, but you'll probably forget this by the time we get there. So but what, like, look, watch how attentive Jesus is to a person, okay? Jesus calls Peter with a miraculous catch of fish. Makes sense, Peter's a fisherman. Years later, after discipleship and relationship with Jesus, Peter denies him three times. And when he does, he's standing next to a charcoal fire. The text specifies charcoal fire, okay? Now, after Jesus is crucified, Peter loses hope. He goes, back, he goes back to fishing. And so then when Jesus is risen, he has to go and call Peter from the fishing boats again. And when he does, what does he do? He recreates the miracle of the miraculous catch of fish. He brings Peter back to the specific moment of his calling. And then he makes breakfast on the beach, and they cook that fish over what? A charcoal fire. It's the only other time it's mentioned. Very, very specific link. And he asked Peter three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Other disciples are around, but the moment is for Peter. The whole thing is engineered by Jesus according to Peter's very specific spiritual needs set at that time. That is how in Jesus Christ, God is giving us his full attention. And so that's, that's the call for us. That is the kind of attention um, that we're to give to people as apprentices of Jesus. And like much of our loving of people is oftentimes it's like more of an assertion of ourself than a recognition of the other person. It can be really hard to love people as they actually are, like without projecting our own preconceptions or like our own assessments or um, diagnoses onto them. Uh, And if we haven't paid attention, that is unavoidable though. So we can't love what we haven't paid attention to. That's period. Um, The next is mystery. Mystery is the next dimension of being with. Mystery should be understood in contrast to a problem. So do I perceive this person as being a mystery? Uh, in which I am involved, not a mystery to solve, a mystery that I can't get to the bottom of, a mystery in which I am involved. Um, Or do I treat them as a problem, which is something that I can observe and sort of circle and like maybe even solve or fix, usually without having to get too much of myself involved. A mystery is something bigger than me. Um, I'm having to move quickly. Humility is required with that. Patience is required with that. 
Those are things that Jesus teaches us. Look in the book of John at the way he interacts with the woman at the well. Look at the way he interacts with the woman caught in adultery. Um, he's modeling this, okay, mystery. Next is delight, delight. Delight is a mutual joy in relationship. It's critical to our flourishing. Um, delight is how God relates to God within the Trinity, and delight is how God relates to us. Um, his presence with and his attention to us bear witness to that delight. Um, Jesus says to, to his disciples, I haven't called you servants, I called you friends. Occasionally he calls them little boys in an affectionate way. Jesus delighted in his disciples, God delights in us. And so here's a question for us. Can we discover joy anywhere besides our own efforts and our own accomplishments and our own successes, etc.? That's what it means to delight in somebody else. Now, once these are in place, once we're really learning the skills of just like being with, then we move into something active. The next dimension is participation and partnership. And this is where working with comes into play. When we have all the other stuff in place, we're prepared to do this without problematizing people. Um, participation is this posture that says, I'm not the only one with something to offer here. Um, it's not so much this person needs what I have, but it's that we probably have stuff to teach each other, and then that builds a foundation for effective partnership. God could have solved all the problems in our world all on his own without our help. And as of now in the year 2023, he has not done that. Why? Because God is a God of participation. He's a God of partnership, and he's calling us into that in Christ. And then out of participation and partnership comes actual enjoyment. Now we can actually enjoy a relationship on someone else's terms. Like in human terms, enjoying someone means treating them like it's their birthday every day, right? It's honoring, celebrating, appreciating, loving them, not because of their productivity or their performance or anything else that they can do, but just because they exist, and anxiety can turn a birthday party into an exercise in working for, but the heart of a birthday party is just the desire to be with the person whose birthday it is. And this is how God feels toward us. God enjoys us now and forever and loves us and wants to be in relationship with us simply because he made us, which is another way of saying simply because we exist. And God is after our joy. Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, I've told you these things so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. And that's the gospel, is that God enjoys us. That's what it is. Like, what at the point of what we call the gospel is not that we can get our sins forgiven and go to heaven when we die. What at the point of salvation is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit infinitely enjoy one another, and they are offering to extend that infinite mutual enjoyment to us by giving us their presence, attention, mystery, delight, participation, and partnership. That's grace, okay? That, um, that is the gospel. I mean, you want to know why heaven lasts forever. It's because forever is how long it takes to enjoy all of God. Joy, when we become competent at being present to God and people, paying attention, honoring the mystery, delighting in them, allowing them to delight in us, participating and partnering with them, experiencing the joy of that participation, then the word for that experience is glory. And glory is the last dimension. It's the, it's the, you could call it the telos. It's the end. It's the purpose of all of this. God's life is shaped to be with us. Being with us is a natural extension of his character. Being with is full of grace and truth. Um, the Trinity's being with one another and the Trinity's being with us in the word made flesh. Both of those are described in John 1 as glory. So God being with God and God being with us. 
is what glory means. Jesus prayed in John 17. said, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. That's union. That is oneness and withness and glory. And that is what Christmas is about, is that withness. I want to dismiss our communion service now to prepare the elements, and um, the band can come up here. And as we prepare, um, I want to remind you that Jesus regarded God's glory as being most powerfully displayed through himself at his crucifixion. He spoke repeatedly about it, saying that the time has come for the Son to be glorified, speaking about the time when he'd be crucified. And in a New Yorker article uh, titled The Woman Behind the Camera at Abu Ghraib, Errol Morris probes the atrocities committed by American soldiers in Iraq. And he makes this resonant connection to Jesus Christ. He, he says, of course, the dominant symbol of Western civilization is the figure of a nearly naked man tortured to death, or more simply, the torture implement itself, the cross. But our pictures of the savage death of Jesus are the product of religious imagination and idealization. In reality, he must have been ghastly to behold. He must have been ghastly to behold. He goes on, had there been cameras at Cal- at Cal- <clears throat> had there been cameras at Calvary, would 20 centuries of believers have been moved enough to hang photographs of the scene on their altarpieces and in their homes? The life of Christ, as we see it in Scripture, is full of all of these contradictions and seeming contradictions anyway, paradoxes. He is God and he's human. He is the word and he's flesh. He's a king and a servant. He's the lion and the lamb. And when he is most glorified, he's ghastly to behold. Christmas is, um, is not the time in which God works for us, but Christmas and Calvary speak to one another in the word made flesh. As we have a body born in Bethlehem, to be broken for us. And before Jesus was ever the word made flesh, he was the lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the earth to take away our sin and to bring us back to God once we were alienated from God. But now he has reconciled us. He's made us one with him again through Christ's physical body, through death to present us holy in his sight and without blemish and free from accusation. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.